should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Well, good afternoon, everybody, on this wonderful uh, 17th day of February. Um, this is the Michelle Miao Show, but of course... I am not Michelle. I am BB Sweetbriar, and I'm filling in for Michelle while she is on assignment in the wonderful world of Hawaii. I, 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 and I'm going to continue to say it that way until she returns because I don't think anyone considers being in Hawaii work. But you know, but she is doing. She is covering a story um, in Hawaii, which I'm sure she'll be very excited to share with you upon her return. But welcome to the show, and as always, we have some wonderful information to share with you, as well as wonderful guests. And yesterday, we had an opportunity to speak with um, someone that um, a story that we found on Huffington Post, um, which was pertinent to the Super Bowl halftime, and I thought that was very, very interesting. And today, we also have someone who also. Um, shared an article uh, with us all in the world on Huffington Post Queer Voices. And uh, the gentleman um, wrote and posed a question, wrote about and posed a question as, this is the question, what do LGBTQ rights have to do with Black Lives Matter? And I find it very pertinent to... Uh, me, not only because I'm an African-American and I happen to also be LGBTQ, but here in San Francisco, we have recently, well, over the last couple of months, uh, awarded the Black Lives Matter uh, organization here in San Francisco through the Board of Supervisors with a proclamation for the work that they have done on the subject of Black Lives Matter, as well as that organization is currently up for public vote to be uh, an organizational grand marshal and the San Francisco Pride. So um, there we have kind of those two groups represented, also being honored um, or hopefully honored by the LGBTQ community here in San Francisco. So the question seemed to be very pertinent to, to me, at, at least, and to the area of San Francisco. And so I decided, or we decided to contact Brandon. Uh, now, Brandon, you're going to have to make sure I say your name correct. Or, correct. Neeful. Is it Neeful? <laughs> Neeful. Neeful. Oh, see? Neeful. I got it right. Who happens to be many things, um, if you read um, his bio on his website, which is Brandon. Brandon Neefel, and that's spelled K-N-E-E-F-E-L dot com. He's a spiritual counselor, a soul coach, which I think is very wonderful. And you do a lot of speaking and um, I, I don't know if you call workshops in different areas, including um, progressive theology, community and unity movement and building, the LGBTQ community, spiritual practice. You do a lot of things in that area. Um, so welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So I'm going to start off right away, and I'm going to pose the question back to you. What do LGBTQ rights have to do with Black Lives Matter? That is a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I agree. I agree. And one I wanted to begin to answer, and that's the whole deal here, is that we aren't having these concrete answers and saying that this is how it is for everyone. We are just beginning to see that maybe there's an intersection here that maybe possibly the thing that is opposing Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ rights movement are similar. Maybe we have a common oppressor, and it's not particularly a group of people, but more of a body of thought. Mm -hmm. And so I want to propose that we start addressing this body of thought that asks each minority group, and not just black people or LGBTQ people, but um, other minorities as well, to really think about ways in which they are asked to forego their, their, their unique qualities in order to assimilate and eventually be accepted. I, I found that part of your article extremely interesting because um, I see that happening every day. As we, as we look at groups of, of people, minorities, of all types of races, whether it be, you know, Latinos, Asian Americans, whatever, black Americans, that those that seem to be in um, areas of acceptance, okay, mm-hmm. seem to have ha- be the farthest away from their natural roots, if you know what I'm trying to say. And, um, you know, that um, they don't either live in the neighborhoods in which their communities normally inhabit, um, that they don't even necessarily consider the cuisine of their culture the cuisine that they enjoy any longer. Uh, You know, it's those little things that sometimes we forget about looking at that actually matter in their assimilation, which is kind of interesting. I thought, and once I read that part of it, I really started kind of thinking in my head, even for myself, what things have I consciously or subconsciously given up in my own culture in order to feel accepted? Right. Absolutely. And it's interesting that we want to talk about unity and unifying in the United States and really when we think about what unity is, it's not uniformity. It's Mm -hmm. actually the opposite of uniformity. Unity, in order for it to matter, requires things that are different, diverse, finally coming together and something spiritual or transcendent underlying all those qualities and actually holding them. So unity as a spiritual principle founded, that was founded by our, you know, early um, uh, leadership, mm-hmm. such as Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, finding that that what was one of the most significant things about us, that unity, that quality of uniting, we need to understand that in order for us to progress into the fullest dimension of what unity is, it requires us to um, draw in all those colors together and really see that unity, that Sameness is absence of unity, basically. Well, 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 yeah, you you mention you make a diff, you make a distinct 
uh, difference between equality and equity, mm-hmm. and um, which is what you're speaking about in that. Can you kind of define that a little bit more on what you, what is the difference between equality and equity and why is no, um, why is recognizing that difference important to our struggle to be accepted? Right. Okay. So I want to mention that each minority group and thus each individual who finds themselves on the fringe of society must define equity for themselves, mm-hmm. and it is their right to define equity for themselves, meaning it is their right to say that this is uh, an equivalent distribution of, wo- of what is rightfully theirs mm-hmm. to the extent of their own experience, meaning equality is everyone getting the same piece of the pie, the same size, like one-eighth, 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 one-eighth. And equity is understanding that people are diverse and we have unique experiences in which we, someone would need more or less or someone would require more or less or someone with a unique experience in a living situation might need less of this and more of this. And paying attention to those needs and paying attention to how someone could rise by getting a little bit more of something else with a little bit less of something. You know? Something else. So it's mm-hmm. not saying that we all need the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's we all need the same opportunities in order for our uniqueness to rise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I I got that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one thing I wanted to kind of back up on because you do mention as we were from the beginning when we were talking about um, uh, the the idea of. Uh, the assimilation and that we're giving up something. What One thing that I wanted to pose to you, because you don't really go into it, but I think you kind of hit upon the idea, is, you know, there's always that thought, of, particularly with LGBTQ community, and I would gather with the, the, the movement of all minority groups, is that we always seem to say that in order for us to progress, that we also need to have our allies in those other groups that are oppressing us if you know what I'm saying. So mm-hmm. so like with the LGBT community, we're always saying about our straight allies and that in order for us to really um, reach our goals that we have to have those straight allies in order to to, to do so. And, and, and I guess the same is true with African-Americans, Asian-Americans, that if, if we feel that our oppressor is white America, that we have to have our allies within that group in order to get our voices heard and to make progress. What are your thoughts on those when people say those types of things? Oh, I well, I love when someone who is not part of a minority group gets it mm-hmm. and hears it. You know, I cannot speak for black people as I am not a black person, but what I can do is stand and bear witness to what is occurring. And in that bearing witness, I create space for those people in whatever community I am to have a certain voice. Mm-hmm. And that's the unique thing about LGBTQ people is that unlike other minority groups, we are found in every single state, exactly. culture, economic level, ethnicity, religion. So we automatically have an in. And whether we're accepted in our natural state, whether it's our family or the place where we live, we're already there. We're already there. So we are. 
we already have, kind of have a voice where mm-hmm. we don't have to be let in. We just have like have to, we just have to be loud enough and heard, right? <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, our struggle is a very internal one. Um, the LGBTQ people have a very, but once we're past that internal struggle, we're kind of unstoppable, and we need to look at where you know um, we can help other communities that need the external help, that need the places where their bodies can be seen and heard, and um, that's why you know. And I love Black Lives Matter. It's it's founded by a lot of queer activists, and there's a lot of people in that movement. And I think it's because they understand the inter- intersectionality, that if we leave one behind, then that won't help us. That if we leave someone out, then that only harms us. And, um, I, and I know, wish that message, though, would get across more to um, minority groups or groups in general, all the groups in general, about when it comes to how they look upon the LGBTQ community. Because you, you just mentioned something that is definitely prevalent in the Black Lives Matter um, uh, groups um, or group here in the Bay Area of San Francisco, where mm-hmm. um, it, there are so many LGBTQ community members that partake in that that fight and are part of that organization. Yet it's really difficult for me to, it would be, hard for me to find where the reverse would be true for me to say that many non-gay people who happen to be a part of the black um, community would be supportive of any struggle of the LGBT community, if you know what I mean. And I'm not, I'm generalizing right. here, of course, but, um, but you know, I don't see that as often and, and, and they, I don't see the recognition of, um, you know, I, and this question came up recently on a blog that um, was on Facebook that I, or something I saw on Facebook where somebody says, I, this one guy said, I don't understand, and this person happened to be of a different minority, because I just don't understand why minorities who have struggles, civil rights struggles of their own, cannot ap- appreciate or at least embrace the struggles that, the civil rights struggles that, LGBT community has, and that they they don't even want to acknowledge that. Um, and and what do you is, do you have any commentary on on that? Like you know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Brandon does. But you know what I'm going to do before you answer or address what I just said. We're going to take yeah. a quick commercial break. You know, because we got to pay some bills. Michelle got to pay some mm-hmm. bills. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back. We'll be right back with Brandon in our discussion of what do LGBTQ rights have to do with Black Lives Matter and more. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Well, welcome back, everyone. If you just joined us, I am B.B. Sweetbriar, and I'm filling in for Michelle Meow here on the Michelle Meow Show. I ha- also happen to be the host of the Sunday segment of uh, the me, me <laughs> la, 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 the Michelle Meow show um, called It's Everything with B.B. Sweetbriar. And you're joining in on a continued conversation that I'm having with Brandon Neeple, who um, wrote an article in the Queer Voices um, Huffington Post um, blog area um, posing the question, what do LGBTQ rights have to do with Black Lives Matter? And we were right in the middle of talking about out, um, how there, you know, are a lot of LGBTQ community members who have embraced the struggles of um, the Black community, in particular the Black Lives Matter movement and and fight. And yet, um, I, it's hard for me to say the same goes the other way and, and the, the reverse with non-gay people in the black community embracing some of the struggles of the LGBTQ community. And so I asked Brandon if he had any comment on 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 that. And and as he was sitting there, I'm sure with, through the commercials with his whole, you know, sitting on his hands because he was probably has a lot to say. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and let him speak on that that issue. Thank you. Yeah. So I I'm. You know, I love all civil rights movements. I've studied many of them, especially the ones that have roots in America. And some of the most effective ones are from the faith-based mm-hmm. communities, and they rise out of faith. And LGBTQ people, our struggle has been a moral struggle, has been a struggle for morality, mm-hmm. saying that, you know, we are good people, like, you know, there's no one's arguing that we are people, but they're arguing that we are good people. people. And in order for us to really engage in this intersectional struggle, we have to recognize that there's, you know, a, a systemic, faith-based, white, heteronormative, patriarchal um, 
not not agenda in the way that people are making lists of things to do, but agenda in the sense that this is who they are and how they come to rise up that is really opposing us. So when we look at the um, black community and the struggles that they've undergone, we see that they have dealt with the same policing forces that the LGBTQ community has um, in different times of American history. Mm-hmm. And it's always the same struggle that, you know, they're the other. And as soon as you are just enough like us, we will let you into this club. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you get let into the club, the door behind you shuts. So what that tells me is that there's limited access, limited room for this particular club. And um, in order for um, us to all feel what it means to have the false opportunities, the diversity of our culture, we have to metaphorically burn down this club, which is the body of thought that to be like the white, rich male quality is the proper way to be. And we've seen this struggle, you know, with people who oppose certain organizations that really push the white gay male agenda and really push um, black people who are acting more, quote-unquote, white. And we see that. We see that assimilation. But we have to realize that we are, we are literally it's the same oppressor mm-hmm. is holding one community under its boot while it's asking the other to assimilate quietly. So and saying, and, and, no, and, you, and, I, and yeah, I can tell you, um, and as well as I'm sure you have seen, is that um, we have, as an LGBTQ community, we do a similar thing, not even based on race, as far as like um, being more like white male, you know, that type of thing, as as we do with, how many times have we read profiles, whether or not they be, um, I want to meet somebody, or I'm trying to move, or whatever, looking for a roommate, where we put on there, straight acting, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know right. what I mean, what, what right. does that mean, and why is that important, that's, what, that's even more, why is that important, it's like, I, I'm looking for someone who's straight acting. What, and yet, right. that same person wants to be accepted for the qualities that they possess as their LGBTQ person, which may not be straight right. acting. You know, it's like, I don't understand that whatsoever. I'm just going crazy here in the studio. No, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. And it's funny because it's, it's like, obviously many of us who are on the outside of that can see the fear in that. Just mm-hmm. like we can see the fear in you know, black people not wanting to be associated with LGBTQ people and saying that those movements are not linked Mm -hmm. when they in fact are because for the very reason that their black people are being oppressed are the same reason that LGBTQ people are being oppressed because we are not like the white, straight, rich males. And and the same thing that you said before is that we're being recognized as humans, but we're not being recognized as good humans. Um, You know, it's always been that, um, you know, from the days of slavery and everything that we were evil, black people were evil. And, um, Uh you know, and so that that is all the same. One thing that one other point that you make in this article, which I totally so loved and and I want to make sure I bring it up before we run out of time, because I, I I I find myself extremely 
bothered. I'm around a lot of young people um, in the LGBTQ community on a daily basis. And um, one thing that always bothers me is their lack of wanting to know the history, not the ignorance of knowing, not knowing, but Mm -hmm. they don't want to know and that they don't want to engage in conversation about it. They don't want to seek out information on it. They just don't want to know it. And so when, when I think about that and think about some of the points that you made up in particular about our inability to really progress or for anyone to even help us progress until we really understand what caused the, the problem in the first place. And so my thing is with this new generation of LGBTQ community people who don't have an interest in knowing the history, where do you see us being able to address that statement that you've made in this article going forward? Well, I'm, I'm of the body of thought that if you are not called to be interested in this or feel impelled by it, then so be it. It is my responsibility to demonstrate for you. And in my demonstration, may there be history and vision and foresight and change. Mm -hmm. Because I can't ask everyone to know everything and do everything and to understand Gandhi, Satyagraha, and so forth. I can't ask everyone to um, understand intersectionality and really have a deep conversation about it. Mm -hmm. But what I can start doing and what actually changes people is when I'm a different person, when I'm acting kindly, when I'm standing in demonstration and practicing nonviolence mm-hmm. at a grassroots level, at the level of media, at the level of press, at the level of inter, um, interpersonal relationships. When I'm doing that, suddenly the world about me changes and I'm inspiring those who do have the passion for it to really rise up and start to think about how they can affect their local environments. Because to be honest, you know, uh, Margaret Mead said it's only a small people, a small amount of people who do in fact do the work that changed the world, mm-hmm. but it's them who cast the vision and we don't have to, no one has to have the, um, the whole itinerary for what's going to happen. As long as we are clear on our vision and we demonstrate in a nonviolent way, I think history has proven to me that that's enough to start a change. Gandhi didn't have to explain to all of India how it was going to happen, how we'd have that spiritual change. He just consistently demonstrated, and in his demonstration, people wanted to follow him. People wanted to know what was, and what was, what had this man on fire in such a beautiful and profound way. And I think that we have enough. We always will have enough people who are willing to do that. We just need to start getting clearer and clearer, and mm-hmm. I think that will make the difference. Well, I, I hope that I hope that is definitely true. Um, so, in a nutshell, um, you know what what was you kind of hit upon at the beginning of the conversation, but really, what was what were you trying to, um, or what are you hoping will happen as a result of you writing um, this particular piece in Huffington Post? I love that question. Thank you for asking it. My ultimate goal is to allow people to see that we're all working towards the same thing and we can do it without fear of each other. We can do it without fearing that our agendas are going to be mixed and intermingled and somehow we're going to lose a sense of us. I think that when we work together 
and we work together in a way that recognizes each other's strengths, we only get strengthened in our cause. And in that, we are able, finally able to come together and tear down the systems and bodies of thoughts that are no longer serving us, that are keeping people in poverty, that are creating situations in which LGBTQ kids want to commit suicide, that are preventing black people from uh, having the fair advantages that they deserve, that prevent women from having equal pay. These all are issues that are brought on by just a body of thought that we need to start dismissing and demonstrating a new way. Wow. <laughs> I I could like talk to you forever. I really could. Oh, thank uh, you. Uh, and, and, and just because, you know, uh, it helps me um, g- uh, gain some clarity. I- I'm gaining clarity in my own, you know, because I am not one that, you know, I-, I can take a point and just run with it and really not be all on the clarity side of things. So um, it's really good for me to, uh, like I said, I, I really uh, uh, had drew a lot of interest on many points that you brought on this. And I, I want to tell people that you need to actually read the complete um, uh, article uh, written by Brandon Neifel on Huffington Post. Is this posted on your, or a link on your website? Yes, it's also on my website. Um, so that'd probably be easier for people than trying to shift through all the stuff that's on Huffington Post to go to Brandon Neifel, which is B-R-A-N-D-O-N-K N-E-E-F-E-L dot com and um, find his article that was in Queer, or on Queer Voices. And uh, uh, you're, it's going to make you think. It made me think on many points, as you can tell from some of my questions there, that there are a lot of things in there. It's a small article, so easy read, but <laughs> there, there's a lot of things in there. You know what I mean? You have a lot in there in, in, in such a short piece. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I I think you'd probably agree with me. You hit upon a lot of things um, that will pose people to to think about things and to start hopefully a lot of conversation and uh, and recognize a lot of the things that you're saying in there as far as some you know the the commonalities in our struggle and joining to help us all meet those those, those that goal in in. And, um, and and recognize the things that we are giving up to be assimilated with mm-hmm. the hi- the higher group, if that's what you want to call it. I don't even know what you want to call it. But um, but I want to thank you so <laughs> much for taking the time to, to at least discuss some of the things in your article and hopefully shed some light for people out there. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again. And um, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we'll have some more of the Michelle Meow Show. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. 
running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our next guest is, uh, I've been waiting to speak to her <laughs> all weekend long. I'm so thankful for her work, her and uh, her, I guess I should say, co-author, uh, Irene Carmen. And, uh, and that's because um, she also was responsible for putting on probably the coolest Tumblr there is out there. <laughs> so let's welcome Shauna. Uh, I'm going to ruin your last name. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no worries. It's the hard one. It's Knizhnik. Knizhnik, which I thought so. I'm, it's that it sounds so cool, but um, but yeah. So we, let's talk about the, your book, Notorious RBG: The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, thanks for being with us, Shauna. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's clarify. I mean, you know, the 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 book, the cover itself looks so awesome, um, but it's uh, it's not your, I would say, typical biography in that way. Um, you know, where it's like over four hundred pages of anecdotes and you know <laughs> things like that. Tell us what's different about this book. Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, it's not your typical um, sort of dry biography, and I think that that was in the spirit of, um, you know, what the Tumblr tried to achieve, which is sort of this combination of fun and substance. You know, obviously the name Notorious RBG is what really, you know, took off in terms of the Tumblr and, and the phenomenon itself. And I think that that speaks to that, you know, juxtaposition, which is this larger-than-life hip-hop icon you know, Biggie Smalls, who, while having a lot, you know, of differences between, you know, between him and Justice Ginsburg, they are both from Brooklyn. Um, as I like to say, they also both sort of speak truth to power. Um, and I think that that sort of aspect of that shared identity or shared, you know, history of marginalization in some way is something that people really um, are drawn to about Justice Ginsburg's story. But, you know, as far as the, the format, we really were kind of trying to figure out, uh, you know, a, a model that didn't, didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. We were looking at other biographies and thinking, well, that's not, you know, that's more serious than what ours is trying to be. But there isn't really any, uh, you know, looking at fun sort of 
books aimed at younger readers. It might not be as serious as what we wanted to achieve. So, you know, it really was this delicate balance of keeping the fun and, um, you know, lighthearted aspects of, of the meme, sort of thinking of Justice Ginsburg as this badass figure um, in the popular vernacular, but at the same time doing, you know, no pun intended, but doing justice to her legacy and her work. And so much of her work, you know, of her legacy is about the, the, the you know, the law, the, which is not necessarily something that translates to popular culture all the right. time. So we really wanted to make sure that we, you know, were accurate when it came to the legal issues that Justice Ginsburg, um, you know, fought for as an advocate and attorney at the ACLU Women's Rights Project and all the issues that she, you know, decided um, and dissented against as a Supreme Court justice, but at the same time celebrating who she was as a person, really trying to bring her to life to, you know, a new generation of, of young people, but also, what, you know, to, uh, for all generations. I think right. we're really inspired by how intergenerational this phenomenon is. Yeah, and I think, you know, to to update the various ways of how we get information, right? I mean, RBG has mm-hmm. probably been mentioned in numerous articles and uh, intellectual scholarly work. Um, but now that people are using things like Facebook and and Instagram or, you know, a Tumblr. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think yeah. I think I think that's why you, your work is so important. My my question to you and and uh, this is really just to highlight the importance of RBG's work. Um, you know, in, in her becoming this uh, pop icon, uh, becoming this internet sensation, uh, why why RBG? I mean, you know, when we talk mm-hmm. about and, and this uh, this question is more about you know weighing how important this person is uh, in our time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that there is a real lack of um, sort of role models for young women in particular. I think to look up to that have been doing the work of, you know, not just social justice, but sort of an explicitly feminist agenda that I think is really, uh, you know, it's hard to find these sorts of role models who have been doing the work that Justice Ginsburg has been doing. And not only that have been doing the work, but have actually been able to achieve the status, um, you know, and level of, of prominence and let's face it, power that she has achieved while, you know, not sacrificing her principles. And I think that young women are really inspired by what she had to go through. Um, and it's really, you know, just a testament to how much I think sometimes we take things for granted. I mean, I, you know, am 27 right now. And, you know, you sort of have this conception of what women from the older, you know, from an older generation went through, but really going through that history, I think is something that was so important for this project and so important to really celebrating Justice Ginsburg's uh, achievements. Um, But at the same time, you know, she's not someone who you would expect to be this sort of icon. And I think that's another reason why people are so drawn to her is that she is sort of so demure um, and and quiet in person and in her personality but she packs such a punch when it comes to her ideals, to her, you know, her language and her words. And she's able to communicate the importance of, of what she's doing and or, or of what the court is doing um, to her readers, which, you know, are obviously primarily lawyers. But she realizes that the importance, uh, you know, if it, these cases affect everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the Tumblr and, you know, and the phenomenon sort of out of her being a dissenting voice. 
And she never wanted to be a dissenting voice. She would much rather the court speak in unanimity. Um, but when it comes to something that, uh, you know, and it started with the Voting Rights Act decision, right. which gutted, uh, you know, one of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation in the United States. And she, you know, she was not going to just sit there and let this happen without sounding the alarm, as it were, and, you know, giving a verbal dissent from the bench. So it's sort of showing people, you know, I think there's a duality to it, that mm-hmm. she's surprisingly um, collegial. She believes in the institution of the Supreme Court, and I think people are often surprised by her friendship, for example, with Justice Scalia. So she's really, you know, she doesn't think that anger is a useful emotion. It's about getting things done. But at the same time, when, you know, people's rights are on the line, when things are, as she saw it, I think, you know, the court was moving in a, in a rightward direction, you know, she wasn't going to just sit there. And so I think that people are really drawn to that aspect um, of her personality. Right. And there was a poignant part um, in the book very early on in which um, there was a discussion about her fear of leaving the bench because of the number of conservative justices that could be appointed um, or that it could be, you know, majority conservative justices um, in which Mm -hmm. it would reverse a good number of the work that she was involved in and the progress that this country has made. That's that's a real fear, I would think. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that what she saw is, you know, her life's mission, her life's mission really is, I think she would put it, is to expand, you know, what we the people means. So for her, the Constitution is not just, um, you know, a set of, uh, uh, of amendments and, you know, articles dealing with the system of government, but it also has principles of equality, of, you know, of justice that are embodied in that document. And so for her, it is about expanding, you know, those rights, expanding the ability for more and more people to participate in our democracy. Um, and so for her, especially when it came to the issue of gender equality and reproductive justice, um, both of which are things, you know, that she worked on at the ACLU, um, I think she saw that, you know, women's rights in particular were, were, were on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for her to just let that happen uh, without, you know, letting people know that they should be paying attention to this, um, she wasn't going to do that. And, yes, I think she absolutely, she had a lot of criticism for, you know, deciding to, to stay on the bench. A lot of people thought that she should uh, have retired while uh, President Obama uh, could still appoint her replacement, but you know she said, "I've been doing this work. I can. I'm going to do this work as long as I can still do it full steam, and I'm not going to sit down and you know just let someone else, you know, have their turn just because people think that I'm I'm done with and I'm uh, you know n- not relevant anymore." I think she really thinks that she is more uh, liberal than a, a justice could be in this climate with her record in terms of her ACLU connections. I mean, that was somewhat of a liability on her when she was uh, being confirmed um, in 1993. But even then, she was, you know, confirmed with a vast majority, I think almost unanimous uh, in the end. And she refused to apologize for her ACLU, um, you know, work. And I think that that would be unlikely to happen in this climate. 
Um, I, you know, speaking of, uh, of women's rights, I mean, I, I couldn't help but like tear up at, uh, you know, at the first maybe 40 pages of, <laughs> of, uh, of reading the book. Um, and, and a lot of it, you know, because it made sense, it, I, uh, connected with the book. It, it was the right kind of language and photos and just the way that it was done. It spoke to me and my age group at 33 years old and you get to mm-hmm. the, women's rights part and you talk about what you mentioned earlier you know her will to um speak openly uh, as far as dissenting <laughs> you know um mm-hmm. it it sounds like it really takes someone who's willing to fight so hard uh, as a woman to have her mm-hmm. voice heard and my fear is that you know when we the day comes that RBG is no longer on the bench. It's going to be a very, very sad day across many generations for other women. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, I think that she has been this voice for so long, and, and, and not just publicly. You know, I think one of the most important things that we talk about, too, is how much of an influence she has had on on her fellow justices. I mean, she was appointed to, she actually argued six cases before the Supreme Court as a lawyer, um, and when she was arguing, a Justice Rehnquist, then Associate Justice, was on the court and voted against her in several cases. But then when she got onto the bench, um, you know, she was able to not only befriend him, but also convince him that, you know, times had changed, that women's rights and women's equality was necessary and was not just necessary, but, you know, part of the equal protection doctrine of the Constitution. She convinced him so much so that he actually wrote um, an opinion where a lot of people who, who read it were thinking, were thinking did, did you write this, Justice Ginsburg? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the same thing with a lot of other cases. You know, there was one case dealing with a strip search of a 13-year-old girl where even, you know, liberal Justice Breyer was joking on the bench about, um, you know, well, why is this a big deal? You know, you know, and Justice Scalia is focusing on the fact that kids, you know, undress in the locker room. And she says, you know what, you guys, you have no idea what it's like to be a 13-year-old girl and what that means and how that is slightly different than, you know, being a boy, right. especially with a male um, you know, with a male teacher that was doing a strip search. So I think these aspects, uh, you know, she she was never in a gender, you know, an essentialist. She's never a different feminist in the sense that she never wanted to say that women were inherently different than men in any way. And that's why she took male clients um, for several of her highest, you know, profile Supreme Court cases as a lawyer. But at the same time, she b- believes highly that her experience, that everyone's experience, um, you know, no matter what their identity is, uh, for her as a Jewish woman who was also a mother when she was applying for jobs, she defended Justice Sotomayor, uh, who made a controversial comment during her confirmation hearings about being a wise Latina justice and how, but, you know, she said th- those things, of course, affect how we make our decisions because your experience affects your view on issues and on life um, and how, and that should affect your, your view on the law. And that's why it's important to have women, to have minorities, to have people of different identities represented at every level of our government mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and everywhere else in our society. And that's what's so important. Diversity is not just, you know, a tokenism. It's about bringing people's experiences to, 
to the decisions that they make. Oh, I love it. Shauna, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I'd love to continue our discussion about your beautiful book, Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Don't go away. We'll continue our discussion right after this break. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org. Download our free app in iTunes and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Our guest today is probably, I mean, uh, one of the best guests we have on the show, who's the co-author of Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and that's Shauna Knizhnik. Um... Shauna, right before the break, we you had mentioned other female justices, uh, such as Justice Sotomayor. Um, well, we should mention that uh, we also have Justice Alina Kagan, um, who my question to you about this is that, you know, do you think that the female justices who had been appointed to the bench and the, the numbers increasing, did that make RBG happy? Oh, absolutely. Um, so Justice uh, O'Connor, who was the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court, um, you know, was appointed by President Reagan and was already on the bench when Justice Ginsburg got there. And she was 
so happy that there was another woman, and I think both of them were really happy, especially, in fact, maybe surprisingly, that they sort of differed on a number of issues. That for, for RBG, it was always about showing that women are not all the same, and that just because, you know, that they had the same gender doesn't mean that they're going to come to the same conclusion about everything. That being said, Justice O'Connor, even though she was um, sort of a more on the conservative wing, she used to be the sort of swing vote in a lot of cases, and she had a much more progressive um, voice when it came to women's rights issues. Um, but then Justice O'Connor uh, retired and was replaced by Justice Samuel Alito, and uh, certainly Justice Ginsburg was not happy to be the only woman on the bench. I think she felt um, that it was sort of regressing as opposed to moving forward, um, and she felt lonely in that role. Um, but uh, yes, absolutely, when just you know, when President Obama appointed uh, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, I think now she she likes to say that you know we're all over the bench, and that doesn't just mean you know we you know in different places. It's literally like when you look at the, the justices on the bench, they sit in order of seniority. Mm-hmm. So now Justice Ginsburg is more towards the center because she's been there for a long time, whereas Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor are on opposite ends on the sides. So it's sort of this, you know, this vision, this, the optics of it uh, matter, you know, I think is what Justice Ginsburg is trying to say, that when, when young women and, and, you know, women litigants come to the Supreme Court, it's showing people that, you know, women are there to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, you know, you, you go through RBG as a as a person, too, not, not just mm-hmm. um, a justice. And this is a woman who had been diagnosed with cancer, who lost her husband uh, after many years. Um, and, and I believe in the book, it even mentions that she coped with it by, by going to work. I mean, she this is what mm-hmm. she loves. Um, she she just can't quit. We mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are, if you guys had a chance to ask her kind of where we're at in 2016, election year, lots of issues being brought up, lots of progress made in which she's been a part of. Um, But yeah, what do you think she thinks are the biggest issues we need to focus on? You know, I mean, I don't want to speak to her. Um, I haven't, you know, we haven't spoken to her about the election in general. I think uh, she has mentioned that she's optimistic Um, That was, you know, in response to all the pressure that she was receiving to retire before President Obama's term was up. I don't think that anyone thinks that's going to happen, and certainly it's kind of a moot point at this point because Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, the Republicans' control of Congress. But, you know, I think that she's absolutely, you know, interested in in people focusing on, on not just ways to move forward, but also making sure that the country doesn't go in a different direction. I think that for her, the, you know, the Voting Rights Act, I think, was the beginning of the Tumblr and was really just what started, you know, my fascination with her in, in a larger way, but I think is indicative of something bigger for her, which is the fact that, you know, the Voting Rights Act was this uh, grand achievement of the civil rights movement, and it was renewed by Congress after Congress with overwhelming support. And then, in 2013, the Supreme Court decided that the overwhelming support was actually evidence of the fact that it was outdated, and that there was no way that they could vote against it. That's actually something that you know Justice Scalia said. And so, for her, I think she's most—I mean, obviously, she's interested in the expansion of of, of, of rights of we the people. But I think that 
you know, in terms of sounding the alarm, I think she's really would be focused on us not regressing and taking away people's rights. Uh, towards the end of the book, there is a whole chapter that's devoted to the photos, the memes, the you know artwork that has come out uh, and included you know in the uh, the Tumblr. Um, I wanted to ask. I mean, since you were the one who mm-hmm. launched this, do you have a favorite? Oh, there's so many favorites. I can't. You know, the, the roof, the roof, baby Ginsburg is probably. You know, that took off probably the most because it had like every single news organization was had an article about it. So that was pretty awesome, especially when you find out that that baby was actually a baby boy that the parents but dressed him up as as Justice Ginsburg. I thought that was awesome. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite chapters, I mean, the whole book is my favorite. I mean, thank you so much. This is such a gift to me and it's something that I'm always, oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to pass it down to, you know, my daughters, if I have daughters or I, mean, I think everybody needs to have a copy of this book really. Um, uh, but the, how to be like RBG, um, mm-hmm. that was so great. And, uh, you know, <laughs> did that come from, um, did that come from her specifically or did you guys just kind of come up with that because of all the work that you've done uh, for this book and, and by meeting her? I think we sort of just came up with it. I mean, we wanted to sort of have a little fun. Like you said, the end of the book is a lot of different um, thing, you know, different fun appendices about, you know, there's like song lyrics from the opera that was written about her song lyrics um, from the notorious RBG rap music video. Uh, that came out the same time the Tumblr started. Um, so there's lots of different things, but we wanted to sort of have like a little fun, just sort of summation of kind of what we thought RBG's most salient characteristics were in terms of, you know, inspiring the next generation of leaders. Um, and I think that that's, you know, something that we wanted to show. And it's really, you know, it's a delicate, new, her, her persona is very nuanced because she isn't this, you know, that's what obviously makes it so funny is that she isn't this larger-than-life person in real life. You wouldn't necessarily expect her to be, you know, and she, as her, her friends and family would say, she's sort of the least likely person to ever want to be an icon or a celebrity. But that sort right. of quiet fortitude, that um, tenacity that she's exhibited throughout her career, and, 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 you know, just willingness to not only fight for the things that she cares about, but to do so in a way that brings others with her. And I, that's what she likes to say, and that's the advice she gave um, to a graduating class that she spoke to, is that, you know, don't assume, you know, negative intentions on the part of your adversary. If you want to beat your adversary, you should paint their argument in the most positive light and then beat them down with logic, not with anger, not with invective, but by showing, you know, your whoever you're trying to persuade, that you are the one that has the correct argument. And sort of that incrementalist sort of plotting forward is something that I think is, you know, maybe not as um, sexy in our current political climate, but is also something that I think is really important. And I think, at least RBG thinks it's very important for achieving lasting change. Um, my favorite one is, uh, but then enjoy what makes you happy. And um, RBG gets out a lot. <laughs> um, I should, oh my goodness! Yeah. Her social life is is <laughs> absurd. I can't even. We couldn't keep up with her. She's you know, in, in the summer when the court is not in session, she's traveling in Europe. She's like 
going to the opera everywhere. She's, she went to Southeast Asia this past summer. Um, you know, she just, she gets around. She, she's living life. She's just doing it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, my last comment and, and, and thought, I mean, it's going to be hard. It's going to be impossible, in my opinion, to fill RBG's shoes, which probably are Ferragamo's, by the way. I found that out in this book. Um <laughs> But, you know, we are looking at possibly electing a female president, and I just wanted to see what your thoughts were, who some of those female leaders might, who they might be, and and your thoughts around that. So you mean in terms of, like, replacing her on the Supreme Court? I, I, I mean, no, 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 in a sense of, like, just a female leadership in general, um, and this yeah. idea of, you know, them becoming a phenomenon or a pop icon or you know something of that level i don't know if we we have anyone yet or if we could even yeah say I, mean, someone comes I mean i think that that's something that's really interesting about this phenomenon in general um i should say i can't really talk about um my own opinions on the election because i'm currently a law clerk myself and i'm supposed to keep neutral as far as political candidates go yeah but i will say that it is you know something that i think this phenomenon speaks to a lack of 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 female leaders and, and sort of icons um, that have achieved the level of power that, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been able to achieve. Um, I was interviewed for an article last or summer of 2014 where, where the interviewer asked me if I remember having a, you know, a woman in power to look up to when I was growing up that sort of had the same sort of cachet in pop culture. And, and I really couldn't think of anyone. I, I just, didn't have anyone in mind, mm-hmm. and 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 I think that that speaks to the fact that we do still have a long way to go, and that it, you know it does matter that you know women's representation does matter. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today, and thank you for this this incredible, beautiful book. Thank you to both you and I, Irene. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Grab a copy right now while you can. It's Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg by Irene Carmen and Shauna Knizhnik. Um, Thank you so much for being here with us today. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time.